fellow people of the contemporary world. My name is Dean, with me is my associate, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, God's Men and Everything in Between. For those of you who know how to get wrapped up in the buzz on technology and media in the world today, I invite you to take a few steps back and experience the world as it was in classical times, when there was no Twitter to fill you in. This is a world of mythology, gods, and tales, and how they were incorporated into the daily processes of the people who held the aforementioned concepts as integral to their culture. That's right, Sarah. Imagine one of our generals praying to the ancient Greek god of war, Ares, as a form of reassurance for the upcoming battle. For that matter, how about a college student making a sacrifice to the goddess of wisdom, Athena, for good luck on the final? Of course, that seems crazy to us, but it's only natural for the ancients. The gods and goddesses were figures to be respected and hold a large amount of sway in decisions, both big and small, that those people of Greece made day to day. The gods each had distinctive qualities and nouns that could be attributed to them, as well as one or several particular symbolic animals and other nouns that they represented. Hera, the queen of the gods as Zeus's wife, was the goddess of marriage, and the family and her sacred animals included a cow, peacock, and lion. Her animals and the abstract nouns she represents don't seem to have a very strong correlation. This correlation is much more apparent when you look at the god of war, Ares. Some of the things that represent him are the spear, armor, the vulture, dog, snake, and boar. Due to the wild nature of his symbolic animals, a connection to war is much more easily identified. Yep, that's right, Dean, and don't believe for a second that there are only a few gods. There were hundreds of gods in total, but history only focuses on the major ones believed to reside in the halls of Olympus. An ancient Greek need not make requests of the major gods like Zeus or Athena when asking for help, but may find it more practical to pray to a lesser god in the hopes that they may be more easily heard and responded towards. If an ancient has a matter for which they would greatly appreciate a positive sign from the gods, they don't necessarily need to pray to Zeus to send an eagle. They could instead pray to Iris, a lesser goddess and bearer of the rainbow. In a similar fashion, an ancient that has been going through tough times could pray to Tyche, the god of luck, to reverse their misfortune and hopefully see brighter days. That's a very important point you just made, because most people who have some limited knowledge of the Greek gods in this age don't often realize that there are many more minor gods that could possibly be more practically accessible to the common man than the major gods that are referenced repeatedly in Greek works such as the Iliad. The Iliad was a great epic written by Homer detailing the events that were presumed to have transpired during the Trojan War. This epic is a great source to consult when drawing conclusions about gods, their connection to nature, and the effects of that connection on the people of the classical world because their direct actions permeate the war and the lives of the mortals that were fighting it. I don't imagine every person in the classical world had the resources to travel to a mountain or the temple of the god or goddess they wanted to receive favor from and offer them a sacrifice. In the Iliad, the main character Achilles fights the river Xanthus and it fights back. Imagine the notion of such an act today. That goes beyond the notion of giving a river personal qualities and becomes actual physical manifestation of a spirit with an individual will through nature. I also think that it is worth noting that the river Xanthus was referred to as the god of the river Xanthus, and also possessing of the alternate name Scamander. So not only was it a minor god, but the fact that it had a separate name that it was called only by other divine entities brings credence to the idea of a far gap between humanity and divinity in ancient times. 
Earlier, you also made a point about Zeus's symbolic animal, the eagle, didn't you? Yeah, I did. In Homer's Iliad, it was used several times throughout the course of the war as a sign of fortune for those it was sent to. Book 8 of the Iliad reads, On Olympus, Hera shakes with anger in her desire to help the Achaeans, but Poseidon checks her rage. On the battlefield, the Achaeans are pushed back to their fortifications. Hera sends inspiration to Agamemnon, who encourages his troops to stand fast. Agamemnon prays to Zeus to save the Achaean army, and Zeus sends a sign of encouragement to Agamemnon in the form of an eagle. The eagle gives the Achaean army hope, and they begin to fight back. So yes, Dean, Zeus used the eagle to send encouragement to the Achaeans, even though he had temporarily turned the tide of the war against them. The perplexing thing about the gods and their relationship to nature is that, at times, they seem so ingrained into the forces of nature that their mood manifests itself physically in the natural world, and that is a commonplace explanation that most of the classical people accepted. But if they're so directly responsible and connected to the natural world, what does that say of their very pronounced and individual wills? If I was an ancient Greek, I don't think the idea that I have to be subjected to an uncontrollable world where nature around me shifts according to the maelstrom of emotions from divine beings would sit well with me. But maybe that is because I am from the contemporary era where we seek to use technology as a means to control the world around us and consciously or subconsciously give ourselves peace of mind through the predictability it inspires. In this podcast, we aim to determine whether it's more appropriate to consider the gods as independent beings that only manifest themselves through nature if they willingly intend to do so, or if they are too deeply spliced into nature to be given such an individualistic interpretation. Correct. Let's start by providing arguments for either side. In the Iliad, Xanthus was the river itself and it physically wrestled with Achilles. What are we as humans supposed to make of this? We must determine if it was by chance that Homer decided to illustrate the action in such a manner, or if he truly believed that gods were present in the matter for which they stood. For Xanthus, that would be the river. For Zeus, the clouds and lightning. For Poseidon, the sea. I think that gods were meant to be viewed as ever-present in the matter itself, because the sky would thunder and winds would surge if Zeus were to anger. But if it was not his intention to distress the people living under the sky, in which the storms were occurring, and that would mean that the emotional reaction expressed through nature was involuntary and suggests that ultimately the gods couldn't be separated from nature. You do make a great point there, but at the same time, that diminishes the importance of their will. The will of a god would, in theory, mean the ability to exert an almost boundless control over the forces present in the world depending on where that god fits in the hierarchy of the divine beings. Zeus being the top, and some lesser nymph for demigod being the bottom. Sarah, I'll be honest, it's proving pretty troublesome to reconcile the fact that gods can do anything they wish, but should their emotions involuntarily manifest themselves in the natural world, would they still be in control as a divine person, so to speak? Maybe classical humans simply operated under the assumption that a god wanted his anger or happiness to be expressed in the natural environment that surrounded the humans so that they would never be in doubt about the god's purpose. That assumption would make things a whole lot clearer, Dean. However, if that were the case, then why would there be a need for temples and priestesses? Ancient Greeks went to appease the gods when they thought they were angry by traveling to their temples and offering them sacrifices. And even at times when they did not know what to think or how to interpret what they believed to be a sign from God, 
express their nature, they would go to temples and consult priestesses in the hopes that they would be able to relay what their god is trying to communicate. For the most part, the logic in their mind seemed to be that a storm could not simply be a storm. I believe the reason much of this seems so hazy is because no one in classical times was quick to say that one answer was completely right or wrong out of fear that their conclusion would not be generally accepted. It is easy to ascribe both individual and ubiquitous nature to gods because that would mean that all bases would be covered in terms of logic and nothing would have to get too specific. Thales, the one credited as the first philosopher, had a simple theory from which numerous other theories later sprung. He said that all is water, and all things are full of gods. He was revolutionary in that he was the first to present a theory of everything, first to ascribe an element to it, first to imply that all is one, and first to reference where gods fit into that one. Many today point out that he was erroneous presenting his monist theory in such a way because his two aforementioned phrases conflict with each other, but I'm not going to get into that. For our purposes today, we will simply look at the connection he makes when he ascribes water to all things and all things being full of gods. In the purest sense, that would mean that gods have an innate connection to water, what he believes composes everything. That would make it true to say that the first philosopher, who inspired many other philosophers that shaped the thinking of numerous people in the classical age, believed that gods had an inherent relationship to all things, which includes nature as the environment that surrounds humans. I suppose that if we expand from that, it makes it easier to accept that gods have an inherent connection to the natural world, independent of their separate identities as gods. I think we have our answer. I think so, too. There you have it, folks. Gods in the classical world were both separate divine entities with their own wills and ever-present forces in the natural world that surrounded classical humanity. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Thanks, Thanks for, for stopping, stopping by, by and may the gods, gods be with you. you.